Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. If you're listening via the internet, you can type your questions in the comment box. You can also call to listen by dialing on your phone at 516-531-9540. And if you want to also ask a question after you're connected, press 1 and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. We're also available on about seven podcast platforms. And lastly, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Today, our first guest is Byron Lewis. Byron Lewis made his mark in advertising with Uniworld Group Incorporated, the agency he created in 1969. In 1972, organizers of the National Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana, charged Lewis with supervising advertising and media strategies for the convention. Welcome, Mr. Lewis. How are you doing today? Let's see if we can get him on. Yes, Mr. Lewis, are you there? Uh, I was trying to get Mr. Lewis. I'm on the line. Okay, great. How are you doing today? Again, I'm fine. Okay, great. So we want to start this conversation. I gave a gave an introduction to you. And so we're going to start talking now about your involvement in the political convention in 1972. And I know you saw, you're, you're seeing the film again, uh, like I have, the film Nation Time. And so my question, my first question to you is, after looking at the film Nation Time, what was one of your most lasting impressions? The most lasting impression was the fact that from all over the country, from north, south, in Gary, Indiana, which is truly a small city, that we could bring the most important black people from the civil rights movement, the beginning of what I considered to be at that time, the first real opportunity to bring black people together from all over the country to create a way to improve the lives of black people past and present. And the excitement was something the only thing that I could compare it with was the 1963 March on Washington, which I was a young man. But to me, it was the beginning of what I thought would be a real way for black people to organize and become sort of a, a pathway to gain greater freedom and and, and, and and what I think is in power in this in this society. Okay. Great. Let me add uh Reverend Dina Holland Neal of Peace United Church of Christ in Merrillville, Indiana into the conversation. She's gonna join us. Uh she recalls being a teenager at the convention with her father, who was an assistant to Gary Mayor Richard Hatchett, who helped organize convention 
1972. So let me add her to the to the to the conversation right. and uh, see if uh, Dina has any lasting impressions after seeing the film. Dina, are you there? I am here. I okay, am. so so uh, what was first your, of all, I want did, to thank you for including me because uh, this uh, that convention was something that um, stuck with me and has continued to be a part of uh, my memory um, for my my entire life since that time because I act, it was actually my senior year in high school. And, you know, um, we uh, that year were the first ones to be able to vote at 18. So it, it really was a, a special time in my life. But to see all of these black people come from around the country to my hometown and to my high school, because that's where the convention was held, it just really invigorated me to know that I had work to do. Uh, as a young African American uh, female, uh, we, you know, of course, we've always faced opposition and and struggles in this country, and so I knew just seeing all of these people come together that we had a lot of work ahead of us, but it was work that needed to be done, and so it. it was a lasting impression on my life. Okay, well, let me That's add. My, let me go ahead, Mister. Uh, go ahead, uh, Byron. Well, I wanted to respond to Reverend Neal. Yes, I might have known your father working with um, Mayor Hatcher, and we really spent a lot of time with Hatcher, and probably your father. Yeah. So that I'm delighted to be able to speak to you at this time. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so, Dean, do you want to add anything else before I give my impressions, and then I get your you all's comments? Okay. Dean, do you want to add anything else? Well, no. I, I think that was that's just kind of my overall uh, memory of of that convention. Um, and how about and the film itself? Oh, the film! I thought the film was excellent. Okay, and, and it yeah. too brought back memories. Um, I thought it was. It just covered um, that whole event. So for people that weren't able to attend, uh, and in fact, I, the first time I viewed it, I was with someone who wasn't born when and <laughs> during the seventy-two convention. <laughs> But, and, and, you know, and what was, actually, what was their pressure? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, they had a little head start because it was Mayor Hatch's daughter, Rakin, his oldest daughter. And okay. though she wasn't born at that time, it, I, I think that was what was one of the really uh, good things because she'd heard so much but had, you know, had missed so much of it because she wasn't born. But um, we enjoyed looking at that film together and talking about it. And then we went back and watched it again because it's one of those things that you know, like a lot of. Well, can you share? Well, can you share a little bit of? A, can you share a little bit about a specific impression you may have had of watching her there, watching the movie? 
watching the movie with Reagan. Yeah, can you give us a yeah. specific impression yeah. you may have gotten of her impression? I um, there were times I'm trying to think of, of times, distinct times, when she said, "Wow, I didn't know that," you know, um, and so that that was part of. There were occasions, um, and well, let me say this: one of the things that the convention uh, brought up that I think is so relevant today. Uh, one of the main contentions was a third political party. Yes. And I think that, you know, especially for us as African Americans, we are at that crossroad right now. I mean, we, um, we, we make a huge difference in the vote as we saw during this last presidential campaign, but we don't always make a huge difference in what happens in our communities as far as change occurring. And so that was one of the things that we talked, she and I talked about, but seeing the movie together, um, you know, we, it, it was, it was, it was a good experience for me to see, you know, to watch it with Reagan okay. um, because, okay. yeah. No, okay, go right let, on. Let me, yeah, let me go ahead so we can move on. Now, I think my, my the lasting impression I got after watching the film was to realize how um, misogynistic they were. And that, um, of course, it was a part of the time, but these wasn't visionaries. And yet the women were often not on stage. If they were on stage, they weren't really <laughs> speaking and they weren't leading. And also... Right. There was no mention of people of having uh, differences of sexual orientation, even though obviously um, uh, Barbara Jordan was there. Of course, she may not have spoken of it of that point, but the point was still the thought was caged in people's minds, but wasn't let out. And especially when you compare that to days or um, the current election, where you have so many women who have won elections and are in Congress. And having elected the first two openly LGBTQ plus Congress people, that you see a big difference between 1972 and 2002. And just to add my thought, Dina, yes, uh, I wasn't even at the convention as a person or as a delegate or the friend of anybody. I just happened to walk in there one day because I'm from Gary, too, like Dina. But I was still in middle school at that point, and I just happened to walk into the building. So that is how... Um, but most of my thoughts are from the film. So anyone have any comments about my comments? Yes, I'd like well, to say this. To both comments. Okay. To Go me, yeah, to me, having participated in the creation of the film, the truth is that it's basically a feeling that we missed our opportunity as black people because much of the discussion had to do with whether we would uh, stay with the Democratic Party, uh, we would start our own party, and I was very excited about that. And having gone to the March on Washington in 1963 and seeing the film, I said, oh, it will be our opportunity. And unfortunately, some of the things, Wayne, you did 
mentioned and what you sent me. They really did not focus on Shirley Chisholm, who was an individual who ran for office on her own and who basically was there. But as you mentioned, Wayne, she should have been able or should have been put up as a potential presidential candidate, but with the background and support of all of these important or want to be important black people from all over the country. I think the official attendance was somewhere close to 10,000 people from the church, sororities, the colleges, and the other politicians. And the film only reminded me of something, Wayne, I didn't pay as much attention as you did. Because we had the widows there, from Malcolm X, Dr. Yeah. King. And so I thought the film, and then reading what you sent me, brought me up to the one problem we didn't solve and have not solved as we speak today. And that would be? That we are not organized. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we have just gone through a, well, Joe, Joe Biden will be the president whenever Trump decides to leave. But the truth is, they admit that it was black women who voted, who voted and were the difference in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, and that was the kind of significance paid to black women that I have really never heard from anyone else other than Biden in, in the remarks that he's made. Okay, I appreciate that. Well, and and, and I make make for those who haven't read the article that uh, Byron is referring. He's referring to the doc. It's called the doc, uh, documentary on nineteen nineteen seventy two national and black political convention showed that blacks too have become more inclusive, and it's at portofharlem dot net. Go ahead, Dina. And a lot, a lot of work, especially with women being involved. Uh, we still had a lot of work to do in 1972. Uh, and that was not only on the political front, but it was also in the church, you know. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, was one of the things that I was, you know, out of that convention, there were women, Maxine Waters and other women who went home and said, our voices need to be heard. And that was one of the positive things of, I think, of the National Black Convention in 1972, because women did leave their feeling empowered. And uh, prior to that time, as you said, we we did not have, we weren't in the forefront. And right. as far as the LBQ situation, you know, that was, still hush-hush at the time. And unfortunately, a lot of people um, would not, the church included, 
would not have that conversation. Of course, it existed, and as African Americans, we, you know, of course, we knew, especially in the church, but we ignored it as if to say, if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, or, you know, something like that. So, and, and I, I still see us having some issues right now, today, and allowing people to be who people, you know, who they are. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But um, I think that the convention did serve to empower women. And um, a lot of women left there and went back to their communities and and did get involved uh, politically. But there was a lot of work, uh, admittedly. There was still a lot of work to be done when we came together in 1972. Especially on that front. Okay, moving the conversation on just a little bit more to the next phase. Um, one commentary that I got from a person was that this happened in 1972, and that 1972 was too long ago to discuss or even matter. So my question to you all, starting with Dina, okay, starting to Dina this time, <laughs> does this 1972 convention matter? Why or why not? And as far as I said, let's start off with Dina this time. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, it, it matters. I, I think it matters, um, especially uh, for African Americans. Um, it was the first time, not the last time, but it was the first time that we decided to come together. And this is something we should be doing right now. Formed um, a good foundation that we should have continued on, but we did not. And and so what happened? is we we get in a position where we give everything that we have as far as our vote is concerned, and then it's over. And right. so we we have to stand up and say, look, we because we hold the swing vote in this country, whether we acknowledge that or whether we act on that, it's our vote. Our vote is the swing vote in this country. And so... We we should get acknowledgement, not only acknowledgement of that, but we should act on that. And so the first time that we came together in 72, that was acknowledgement that we knew that we had power. Now, I maybe they said they did, it was so long ago it didn't matter because in some ways I guess some people believe that yeah, it happened, but what did it, what did it, you know, what was the outcome? Well, the outcome was that people left Gary and did go home, and they did run for office, and we had a lot more people uh, elected to office in this country. Okay, but so Brian, I, my, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So let me get well, Byron into the I, conversation. I I would agree with you because I thought after thinking about the event, which to me was a miracle because Gary is relatively a small city, but we had 10,000 people that were intrigued enough by what the convention was going to be about. Black people were coming together and we were going to become 
a unified body. I think, in as I speak with you today, I think that was a missed opportunity because after the event, we began to see black mayors coming out all over the country. Many of them were in that event, in the convention, uh, like Coleman Young for Detroit. And we had just elected a mayor in uh, Newark, Kenneth Gibson. And what I thought, because of many of the people who were there, it gave them the impetus to then become more of a political factor. And you saw the rise of a number of black mayors all over the country. That, to me, was a basic result. But I look today and think we have not, to me, developed a powerful, recognized entity that white people had to deal with. And that, to me, is one of the uh, unfortunate things every time I look at the movie again. Well, I sort of was taken back when the person told me that it didn't matter because as a journalist who loves history, I always think that anything that comes before you is so necessary for you to know just where you've been and where you want to go and you learn from your mistakes. And at this point, you know, Mr. Lewis or Byron Lewis, I have to thank you as a communicator for doing things that made my life easier that I have no clue that you've done. And I'm walking down the street that you walked down, and I have no clue that I'm walking down the street that you walked down already. I think that's the case for everything. <laughs> so I want to openly thank you right now. Just for say being... that because I'm old. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you are a little bit I, I older also than I want am. to say... I also want to know uh, a little bit more about you because I'm just checking on you. And I spent, I consider my career beginning in Harlem when we were all clustered together. And I started working on a small black newspaper, then a small black magazine, all of which failed. But I was inspired by the black people who were there. And they were from all walks of life. But it was, to me, my feeling that I could do something. And what I've done, my career really was about black people. And that's really what Uniworld was about. And I, we had uh, people in Harlem, the ministers, the creative people, but we were all there, almost like a family. And that is what the the, the film at, 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 and Gary reminded me of. All these black people, ideally, with one thought in mind. It reminds me of how I got started and the people who influenced me. And they were great people, like Adam Clayton Paul. I wish the man was alive today. <laughs> because you have to talk truth to power. And I don't think there's anybody that gets in front of these white people, particularly Trump, and and, and, and takes his measure. So those are my impressions as a result of this conversation as well. 
Okay. And then finally, we only have about six more minutes left in this segment before we go to our next guest. But um, the convention was part of a political and economic evolution or even a revolution. And in an interview with I had with Mayor Hatcher, I asked him whatever happened to the revolution. And he set up the revolution delay by explaining that his power was limited. The problem, he said, was that all the major economic decisions in the city of Gary, and I guess he could extend it to the nation, were being made in rooms where there were no blacks at all. And in the end, the economic decisions were far more powerful than the political decisions. So starting off with uh, Byron, what do you think happened to the revolution or the evolution? Well, uh, I think it, in my own mind, it brought black people together, which was important for a starting point. And I personally got to meet people from all over the country, black people, and I was terribly impressed. And the other thing is that I did believe that black was important because uh, I'm 88 years old and I've been living long enough to see how important we have become. But we've done it on the back of the black church, the black colleges, the black sororities. But the lasting impression is we aren't cohesive as a group. And I think the black church, Reverend Neal, was really our major organizing entity during my lifetime. And I don't think that the major churches function in the same way as they did at that time. I could be wrong, but that is my impression. Okay. So that's what happened to the revolution. The church hasn't been as powerful as it was at that point. Well, we had a lot of, you know, denominations, but the black church was the leadership entity in every black community. And we had plenty of preachers at the at the commission when we did the film. Okay. And Dina, you have any thoughts on whatever happened to the revolution? Yeah. Um the, first of all that term, um in nineteen seventy two we were sure as young African Americans that we were there was gonna be a revolution. Okay. Oh, and it was in our music <laughs> <laughs> Oh, amen to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we were sure that revolution was coming. I mean, our music said it. Uh, everything uh, said the revolution is coming, and it won't be televised, by the way. But um, you know, I um I think back to that a lot because um, and I, I have to agree with uh, the the person prior uh, that spoke just prior to me, that we kind of let that movement get away from us. And the church, and, and, you know, I have no quorums of saying that the church kind of, that role that the church had played in, in civil rights did not continue uh, into the silver rights, as as we we may call it. And so... There, there became a breakdown in, in the church, and and that was a big part of what the cohesiveness was for those who were working, you know, to make change in our community. And you know that that is something that we still suffer from. Um, 
people have grown away from the church. But in terms of the revolution, um, I, I don't think it's connected with the evolution. And so we are still struggling to get to that revolution. You know, in 72, we thought it was going to be an all-out war revolution. Well, I know, you know, age has shown me that that probably wouldn't have been a good move for us. Did I say that last part again now? Yeah, age has shown me it. Oh, I, I thought in 72. Did you say yeah. age? Okay. Age, well, age brings maturity, okay. Uh, in 72, I, I didn't have that maturity. I, I just knew that, you know, we we had we had a topographical center in Gary and, you know, that was giving us a whole lot of ideas about how this revolution was going to happen and what we were going to need to do. And so, um, I, you know, I... I I'm, you know, of course, I'm being kind of facetious, but we really believed in 72 that there was okay. going to be a revolution. And we may exactly. be, you know, you well, let me let me give this last one minute to uh, Byron. Byron, can you close this out? Well, um, because I'm the oldest one, obviously, I... I... <laughs> That means that you're the wisest. Or you have the potential no, of being the wisest. I am impressed by the various areas that black people have influenced this society. And I tell people, young people, that the best known people in the world, so if you tell somebody, uh, who do you know by your first name? They know LeBron. They know all the rappers, the music that has influenced the world. A lot of it was church music, and that began blues and then jazz and then hip-hop. We have an enormous effect on the world, but we lack, and Reverend, I have to say that we need a, a coordinating institution that, in a in an interesting way, could speak for us that has the weight to make people pay attention to us. I don't think that we can have our own party or anything. I don't think black people would want to do that. But if there, and I still go back to the black church, the black church spoke for black people. But we've had a tremendous influence on the rest of the world, and it would be interesting Young people like you, Wayne, could find a way to create some kind of central institution that all black people could basically relate to and really affect change. That may be wishful thinking, but that's how I feel. Okay, we're going to leave it right there. I want to thank both of you all for participating in today's discussion, today's talk, and the film is called Nation Time. And you go to porterharlem.net, and you can read more about it. Thank you all, and we're going to have our next guest next. We're going to have a few-second break, and then we'll go to our next guest. Thank you all. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, coming up next is our guest, 
uh, Elena Featherstone. And let's take a short break. And we're back. We want to welcome back to Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Remember, you can visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. Are you there, Elena? I am. Thank you very How much. Are you? I am wonderful. So good to hear your voice again. Let me introduce you all to Elena. Elena is an educator, a writer, and a visionary who challenges social and political inequity on multiple fronts. She is the founder of Featherstone and Associates, a collaborative group of anti-racist and cross-cultural consultants. She has contributed several articles to Port of Harlem magazine, including the article, Are You a Secondary Guardian to White Skin Privilege? In the article, Featherstone continues the discussion we had on how blacks can be conscious and subconscious guardians of white supremacy, supremacy, supremacy. ironically, in an Irish pub in Berlin, Germany, back in about 2000. So it's been quite some time. And Absolutely. so I was, <laughs> yeah, we both have gotten older. But I just must add that this article has been um, a foundation for what much of Port of Harlem has been about. And we often use it and send it to people to help them understand just various things. So let's talk about some of those things and um, that you wrote in those article in that article and just talk about how things are now and today. So one of the things that uh, when I go back over the article that, that, that sticks in my mind and that really changed uh, my perception of life at that point after I read it and after our conversation is that you wrote, when the men in history members as the Buffalo soldiers were removed from protect newly freed women and women, newly freed men and women in the South and transferred West to squell native people for a racist expansionist government, these brave men became sentinels of white supremacy. And so what, what, what I found so jarring about that is that, you know, we grew up wanting to have black heroes. And, and and you're being told that the Buffalo shoulders are heroes, and you shot them down. <laughs> but, you know, as I think about it now, you are so accurate, and it makes and it guides me in my decision-making now. So I want to ask you, yet here we are today questioning the role of Kamala Harris or the people who stand in line for Popeye's chicken as Sentinels. Does this have an ending or even slow down? Before I answer that question, I, I want to circle back to the Buffalo Soldiers. They were still right. brave black men. They were also creatures of their socialization and the society that they lived in them and teaches us to seek approval from white supremacy culture. And we fulfill our role wittingly often but unwittingly most of the time, I believe. So hold your heroes close. Okay. Hold them recognizing that they're not perfect. Now, to answer the question, it slows down. I think we're asking questions. Young people today are asking questions in ways that aren't rooted in appropriate behavior, they are talking about justice and they are talking about it in loud, full-throated voices and making demands. So you may have a Kamala Harris 
who may be a guardian of white supremacy culture. But you have thousands of young people, black, white, brown, Asian, who are talking about justice, racial justice. And often what has happened in the past, what happened to my generation and many generations before, is that we start our conversation about justice and we wind up folding and allowing our attention to be misdirected to the issue of access. So Kamala Harris has access. I'll wait and see how her vice presidency shapes her around the question of justice. Did that answer your question? Pretty much. And I think one thing I got out of that is that, you know, I have, that we have a right to say, yes, Kamala Harris or, or Buffalo Soldier, they all can be heroes, but that they are products of their environment just like we are. And sometimes they, just like we, look for acceptance from uh, the white supremacist structure. And sometimes we do things that we probably should not do. Well, we have to challenge ourselves. I look at, I look at white supremacy taking place on four levels, the personal, the interpersonal, how we interact with other people based on what we think about ourselves, the institutional, the rules and the laws of the society that makes it hold firm, and the cultural, which is so difficult to talk about because it's like the water we swim in. If you're a fish and you say, how's the temperature of the water? The fish is looking at you very confused about what you're talking about because they swim in water. That's their environment. And that is true of us as human beings. And we have to begin to name what white supremacy behaviors look like so that we can hold ourselves accountable to being better human beings and being better activists and better warriors and better cultural revolutionaries than we might otherwise be. Does that make sense for you? Yeah, that, I guess the point is that you still have to que- that we still have to question ourselves. I think that you're saying that when we get ourselves in those positions, we question us. We, we need we can spend more time questioning ourselves. We need to spend more time questioning ourselves, and we need to spend more time questioning the structure because it's it's clear to me that just having black people in positions of power taking advantage of the access that's being offered to us as a replacement for a conversation about justice does not lead to fundamental cultural change. If it did, there would not be the situation that existed with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, oh, God, I'm blanking the name. (laughs) There's so many of them. Oh, I can't believe that. I'm getting old. Not getting, have gotten old, and I can't remember the name of the the man who the the young man who was surrounded by about twenty police officers with drawn guns for jumping over a turnstile in a subway. Yeah, yeah, that one I don't and remember. And some of the and some of those I can't remember his name. Do you remember his name? No, because there's so many of them. I'm telling you. Because the one that we're focusing on to now is is one in Atlanta who's Gambian American, and that name doesn't ring a bell in my head right now. But you know, for most people, they'd never heard that this guy from Gambia got killed in Atlanta. But go ahead. Well, some of those police officers were black police officers, and if access alone was going to cause fundamental evolutionary change, 
having those black police officers present would have made a difference, and it didn't. And that's because we allowed the conversations to shift from justice to access, and that's how we get accommodated, and that's how the oppression of white supremacy, the power and economic control of white supremacy continues onward, and that is one of the ways that black people, while struggling against anti-black racism, become caught up in being sentinels of white supremacy culture. So I guess what I miss is one half of it is, I mean, it's not only questioning myself, but questioning those people who are in positions of power or who have access and questioning their behavior as well. And that is more difficult than you might think because they are in the power position and they do great work around power hoarding and paternalism, telling people how to act, how to be, what to think, what truth is, what justice should be. And they invariably define justice as, I'm going to keep saying it, as access, whether it is racism, capitalism, Well, I'd say at least for me, what I get out of it is that instead of me, even though I could also focus on other people's behavior, at least it made me more aware that I need to evaluate my own behavior. That when I have access, what am I doing with the power that I have? Exactly. And watching yourself in interaction so that you know what behaviors you're engaging in. There's an activist named Tema Okun who wrote an article many years ago that I think is called The Habits of White Supremacy Culture so that she named the behaviors that she saw being improperly used to maintain white supremacy culture. And defensiveness was one of them. And I get defensive because I often get caught up in being right Mm -hmm. as opposed to listening carefully and listening to the lived experience of other people and recognizing that my point of view is not the only point of view. I know it's difficult to believe that I am opinionated, but I am. And I have to watch myself on a regular basis, sure that I'm not dismissing someone Okay, another thing that you wrote, or another part that you wrote that that sticks with me, is you said, quote, and what precisely does mixed mean? Is it skin color? Is it blood quantum? What? And what purposes does it serve for us as black folk to to be obsessed about the question of color instead of issues of our survival and the well-being of our children? And I think about this as we just elected our first African-Korean-American congressperson, and our first African South Asian vice president, what do you think the future holds for those who continue to debate this issue as to who is black? I get so tired of that debate, and it's interesting that you should raise that issue because I didn't go back and reread the article. Uh, I am surprised at how much that is still a part of the conversation. I think it doesn't serve us. People are most effective in their shared humanity 
when we allow people to self-identify. You know, that doesn't mean that a woman from Sweden can suddenly say she's black. But telling people of mixed race, and I use that term advisedly, that they are not black serves no purpose. My granddaughter, who is, I don't talk about black and white often when I talk about people who are multiracial. I talk about the ethnic groups they belong to. Her father is Italian, Puerto Rican, and Irish. And she was in a classroom where a teacher actually challenged her right to to refer to herself as black. And that led to an in-depth conversation between the two of them. You remember my granddaughter. Absolutely. That's a uh, that, led to, that was quite yeah. the conversation. Yeah, she was always and interested to talk to. Go ahead. She was always opinionated also. But I don't think it serves us because it pits our lived experiences against one another instead of weaving them into a tapestry of strength so that we're drawing on all of the points of view and visionary possibilities that we have access to if we can listen. I don't think my dark complexion makes me more black than my lighter-complected granddaughter. What matters is the quality of her heart and her commitment to our people. Right. Now, this is the comment about your granddaughter, just for other people. One of the things I think you can see is how open and more honest your granddaughter is compared to other youth. And I know she's a grown lady now. But her her thought process was just much more broader. It's much more wider. Like I said, we get to hold of a conversation on things that she said and things that she did. But it's amazing on how a child can be affected by living in an environment where things are much more open as opposed to having doors everywhere, if that makes sense. It does. And I think the part that we tried to give her that was really important is there are doors. They have knobs. If they're closed, open them using the knobs (laughs) if possible. And if not, kick it down. Yes. Another thing, and I guess it's toward the end of the things that uh, we could talk about today, and this may be long, it may be short, but it was the One Drop Legacy. And I had to actually go back and look at this one. <clears throat> because in Plessy versus Ferguson, Ferguson, Plessy's lawyer didn't argue that it was illegal for the government to sanction, sanction racial segregation. According to the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, he argued against, quote, the right of the state to label one citizen as white and another as colored. And Plessy himself was only one-eighth black, as we're speaking about your granddaughter again. However, under Louisiana law, the 30-year-old shoemaker was black. And several things have happened since then, since we talked about this last, and that was that in 1990, the U.S. Census allowed individuals to declare their own race on census forms. We just spoke about that. And starting with the 2000 census, Americans were able to self-declare more than one race on government forms. So you can be multiracial or multi-whatever. But most importantly, in this last census, 
blacks were allowed to declare a nationality. So you didn't just have to say you were black. You can say you're black and Nigerian, black and Senegalese. So the results of the 2020 census could be interesting since so many other data gatherers show that many black immigrants, such as Nigerians, often do educationally and economically well. So do you have a prediction about the results of the 2020 census or even this evolution of how we define race and and being able to self-identify ourselves and being able to declare ourselves by nationality? I think it's important to be able to embrace your whole self, and I have some concern about how dividing the black community up into so many different quadrants funding affects the needs of various communities. Because I say that because I, part of my cultural reality is being Native, and I know how the government has used blood quantums and those kinds of differences to reduce the wealth and control in Indian country. So I wonder how those policies will shake out over time. What will they do with that information? It's important to be able to totally self-identify and it is important to have community with political power and clout to get your needs met. So I'm of two minds. I'm pleased that people are able to identify because Nigerians were being identified as African-Americans and they're not culturally and in simple point of fact. And what does that mean for a fragmented black community? So I turn the, the, the spotlight on you and ask the same question of you. What do you think it means? You live in the hub of political power. How can that information be utilized around policy? Well, you know, as a former Census Bureau employee, too, and as a marketer, and we just had uh, Byron Lewis on earlier, and he was a marketer. And I think one of the things that, from a marketing perspective, is that now when you just look at the black population and you decide, okay, should I advertise in this publication or that publication or on that website and this website, you will no longer look at just what percentage of the population is black. But you can say what percentage of the population is black and Nigerian. So when it comes to divvying up um, advertising dollars, for instance, you will be able to better define um, exactly where you want it to go. The scary part about that for those who self-identify only as black American or as African American, you're going to find that a lot of these subgroups are a lot more marketable mm-hmm. uh, because, because they're much more educated and they have a lot much more income. Mm-hmm. And so you will find that some dollars that may have been targeted for educated black people might now might might now go to Nigerians, and I use Nigerians as a particular example because 29 percent of Nigerian Americans over the age of 25 hold a graduate degree. 29 percent, compared to only 11 percent of the overall U.S. population. So they're it's very. It's interesting that you should that you should say that because I'm sitting here as you th- said that putting the numbers and my relationships through my head. 
And every single Nigerian colleague and friend that I have has a degree. Everyone. How does that, that influences, that talks about advertising dollars and how advertising dollars can be influenced and how black, black Americans can be marginalized because they're not as marketable. How does that impact political policy in terms of care dollars, education dollars, getting the needs of communities met? Well, that could be, I don't know, to that one I'm a little bit more open on, but I think socially it could end up being an issue that people who want to cause problems can cause problems, and that they will say, well, you can't just say, for instance, and we've all heard this before, so this is nothing new, that you can't say it's just race that's holding you back because we have these other people here, they're just as black as you, (laughs) and yet they're doing X, Y, and Z. And so because it's going to make a make that discussion a little bit more thornier. Because now, you're going to, because now you're going to have numbers to back that up and numbers to say, well, this is what these numbers say. This is what these numbers say. And, and policymakers often use numbers, come up with policies or to measure their policies or to justify their policies. And so one of the things that I do, for instance, when I try to get people to recognize the situation, I send them a, um, and this is not to be negative, but to to deal with reality, is that um, I send them a link of the recent graduates from Howard University's medical school. And I say, okay, look at this. Now, you can't say that this is somehow a racist institution because it's a black institution. And yet look at what percentage of their medical doctors or their medical students are foreign-born. You know, those, 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 those are your future doctors. And I recognized that when I was at a graduating class at uh, John Hopkins, not John Hopkins, but at Ohio, the Ohio School, and was counting the number of black people who had graduated from medical school, and about, there were, there were a handful of blacks but at least half of the blacks, male and female, were had not had last names that took me a little bit to learn on how to pronounce it <laughs> 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 that way. <laughs> and I said, you know, this is really so this is so this is this kind of discussion that really should be had versus these other discussions about who's black and who is not black. And what I come to when I do some thinking about that. It's not in-depth thinking. I will do some serious thinking about it after we get off this call. Is there's a cultural component that is really important. It's important to have grown up inside of a culture where who you are is not considered negative because the reality is stereotype threat is, is real. It has a real impact in the performance of, of many black students. And culturally, there have been a lifetime of negative messages about who you are and what you're capable of if you're U.S. born. My friends from Nigeria grew up culture where everybody looked like them. The expectation was 
that you were going to perform and perform well. Do you, do you know what I mean? Exactly. Whereas mm-hmm. in, in U.S. culture, the expectation is you're not going to do well. The school that you're going to go to is not going to be a quality institution. You're not going to get the calculus class that you need to be impressive at universities that you apply to. You may or may not know how to apply yourself. And even if you do apply yourself, the reality of stereotype threat is such that it chokes activity in your intellect. But that's only when one aspect of it. But that's only one aspect of it because now we have in Nigerian Americans also doing well. The children of the immigrants doing well. So they were born here. They were raised here. Maybe not raised in the same type of household, but they were raised no, and that, born here. And I only have the experience that I know with my friends. They are raised and born here, but they visit Nigeria regularly. They have matriarchs that have great expectations of them. And they have a cultural reality, a duality, a multi, a multicultural reality that makes them very American, but also very Nigerian. Yes, and there's a term for it too. I think it's. I even bought a T-shirt from one guy. I think it's called. It's called Nigerious. Comes off the word blackish, and it's called Nigerious. Yeah. <laughs> so I love it. But you know, this conversation comes off the article that you wrote, and, and there's at the bottom of that article. There's a part on the one drop legacy. And so as we can see, the one drop legacy is evolving. And that's what we're talking about now, the evolution of the one drop rule and that in the 2020 census, blacks are allowed for the first time to also, that blacks were also allowed to declare the nationality. So how that's going to play out is remaining. So I want to thank you again for that particular article. And we continue to use it. But do you have a last minute thought? My goodness. <laughs> That's okay. Was the last No, I, I, I really don't. I guess if I were trying to close out this conversation, I would say as black people, we need to be vigilant in our awareness of who we are consciously and what we're about unconsciously because we are more assimilated into this culture than we think we are. And knowing that (laughs) will make a huge difference in who we're being with other black people. And as we approach ways to manage white supremacy, internalized white supremacy in ourselves, in our culture, in our country, so that we're able to envision greater possibilities than we were 20 years ago. Okay, well, we got five seconds left. Thank you so much. You listen to Port of Harlem Talk Radio at portofharlem.net. You can check out the article. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. All right, Be talk well. to you later. Okay. <laughs>